Um, well, I began last week with a, uh, a quip about Jonah being a hundred-part series and six verses, and in response, or I think perhaps retaliation, as you've heard, tonight we have one. So tonight is part four of our 101-part series. Uh, no. When I was young, if something went wrong, my complaints were met by my mum's very sympathetic response. She'd say, Mitch, worse things happen at sea. And I'm not sure of the exact origin of that phrase, um, but our readings of Jonah so far, I think, seem to agree with that idiom. Bad things do happen at sea, and bad things have indeed happened to Jonah. But of course, we've still seen in the midst of it all that God is merciful. So just a recap of the last couple of weeks... Just as we have been called to make disciples of all nations, Jonah was called to preach to Nineveh. However, he did not. The Lord disciplines those he loves and he sent a storm to reveal his wrath, but ultimately to help Jonah to understand God's saving grace. Stubborn old Jonah still didn't repent, but he forced the sailors to throw him overboard and God saved them pointing us to the sacrifice of Jesus, which has saved us from God's wrath. And that brings us to today. What's next in the story? Well, Jonah was presumably not a great swimmer, given the storm that was happening. I presume even if he was, it wouldn't have helped. He would have thrashed around, he would have become exhausted and to have begun to sink Moments away from death, it is now and only now that Jonah finally calls out to God. And if you can't see Jonah's cry here in this verse, where is it? Well, that's fair enough. Without spoiling too much for next week, chapter 2 begins in verse 1, In my distress I called out to the Lord and he answered me. From deep in the realm of the dead I called for help and you listened to my cry. So we, we see that looking backwards, Jonah did indeed in his last moments finally call for help and God listened He plucked Jonah from the depths at the last possible second, using, of all things, a giant fish. So what's with the fish? This is uh, point one. I didn't get the points into the bulletin in time, but point one, the fish that was there. At last, as we walk through Jonah, we finally get to the fish. It's probably the most well-known part of Jonah. If you think Jonah, you think fish. They kind of go together, like bat and ball. And this point, that the fish can really be a sticking point for some. Is this where the Bible delves into fantasy? Does the fish coming and swallowing Jonah mean that the Bible is all cod's wallet? No more fish puns after that. I apologise. Thank you, Marley, for getting that one. It probably is true but tragic that many point to this verse, or others like it, as their reason for not believing the Bible. This miracle is singled out, even though it's one of several in the book. And some scholars have even spent a great deal of energy and time describing the different types of large fish that might have been capable of swallowing a human. Occasionally a story even appears where something like this happens. Recently, I think, Richard Branson is is claimed to have been swallowed by a whale and then spat back out, or at least swum in the mouth of one. Um, More... Pertinently, in 1891, a whaler named James Bartley fell into the mouth of a sperm whale. He was in the sperm whale apparently for 18 hours 
when he was finally cut out of its belly on the deck of another whaling ship, Star of the East. You can look it up later if you want. But don't worry, this story isn't going to turn into Moby Dick, the anatomy of the different fishes or whales that could be capable of such a feat. Because thinking like this, well, it doesn't really work. It doesn't really stand up. It reminds me of a scientist I heard of once who spent his life trying to work out how the Israelites could have crossed the Red Sea. How was that plausible naturally? And he is meant to have worked out that if a strong wind blew at 70 knots from the same direction for a long time, a reef that's now eroded may have... Um, and then if the wind stopped four hours later, the Egyptians could... It's starting in the wrong place. Well, where do we start? Let's get some help from the text. Verse 17, it actually tells us how the fish was able to be there. It says, the Lord provided a great fish. Provided. This was a work of God. The word provided, this same word, is used four times in the book of Jonah and it always points to the Lord's power to do things. Here it shows his power or sovereignty over creatures of the sea. In chapter 4, verse 6, it pops up again to show God's power over plants. It's again in 4, 7 to show God's power over creatures, land creatures, and in 4, verse 8, it shows his power over the wind. So the starting point of miracles needs to be... God, and does God exist? Because if he does, of course this is possible, all things are possible. If you believe that God exists, and I think the evidence is all there that he does, well it's perfectly logical to believe in miracles. It actually doesn't make sense to believe in God and not to believe that he can work in and through what he has made. So really how you respond to the fish is how you'll respond to the rest of the Bible and to God. And most importantly, it's how you'll respond to Jesus. The death and the resurrection of Jesus is a far greater and far more important miracle than the fish. And if you do doubt God's ability to do the miraculous, I do encourage you to start with the Gospels. Look at the biographies of Jesus. Turn there. But now back to the book of Jonah. Jonah is seen by most theologians as history um, because Matthew and Luke both record Jesus quoting from it and because it itself reads like a historical narrative and one of the reasons that's thought is note how little emphasis in this part of the story um, about the big fish is actually given. How much space is devoted to the fish? Well, it's one verse, one sentence and one more at the end of chapter 2. It's not seemingly here to heighten tension in a fictional tale. It doesn't read quite like that. It's not there to add a dramatic element to a dull story. There's no great build-up and focus on it. This story is plenty interesting, and the, the previous part is portrayed more dramatically than this. It's, it's an understated sentence. It's almost as if the author wants the reader to not be too distracted by it. It has been said that the fish might be allegorical and sure there's a connection between Jonah being in the depths of despair symbolised by being in the depths of the sea, vice versa, but I think there's more to it than that. This miracle is not actually about the fish, it's about God. If we think about what has happened, a wonderful thing becomes clear via the rescue of a fish. Think about how lost and helpless Jonah is here. He could not have been more alone. He could not have been more helpless. 
He could not have had less control over the situation. He couldn't save himself. And so as weird as it sounds, think about how perfect a fish is to rescue him. Jonah has shown a real reluctance to listen to God or to acknowledge that God can save. Sure, God could have used another ship to rescue Jonah, but it seems likely that Jonah could have just given credit to the ship, put it down to lucky happenstance, or or so might anyone else who is hearing this story. But this rescue, inside a living submarine that could put him back onto dry land, could only be put down to one thing, of God. God is making it abundantly clear that he is at work here. And that's probably a good place to leave the fish behind because as theologian George Campbell Morgan once quipped, men have been looking so hard at the great fish that they have failed to see the great God. I think I would have said men have been looking so hard at the great cod they have failed to see. It has a better ring. But that would be two cod puns and that's lazy. So I won't say that. This brings us to point two. The fish that was there is point one. Point two is about the God who is everywhere. As we look at this verse, I think this is the conclusion we have to come to. Our great God is, is everywhere. And that's great news, I think. Have you ever been afraid that you've gone so far away from God, ignored him for so long, maybe rebelled for so long that you think it might not be possible for God to take you back now? For God to want you now? Have you thought that might be impossible for you to be saved? Well, I think this, mu- this verse is, um, should be music to your ears. If God can rescue Jonah from here, he can rescue his people no matter what. The God who rescued Jonah can rescue anyone, anywhere, because God is everywhere. This is... Um, referred to the Christian term or jargon is omnipresence, present everywhere. And we see an example of how this is explained in Psalm 139, verses 7 through 10 say this, Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me, your right hand will hold me fast. Even as Jonah sunk in a sea in a storm, God was right there to rescue the Jonah who called on him. And it's it's important to note what this doesn't mean. God's presence everywhere doesn't mean that he's stretched thin, it's not like an army that's fighting on too many fronts at once. It's going to, something's going to get overlooked. Or a teacher who is trying to see everything in the classroom, but he's struggling to catch what's happening in the back corner as he turns to the whiteboard. Because we can connect often presence with, with body, our physical beings, and rightly so. I'm present here, but I'm not present elsewhere. But God is not like us, not confined to a, a body. So... How are we then to understand this presence? Well, the Bible shows us that God is everywhere because he knows everything and he has the power over everything. And if he knows everything, past, present and future, and has the power over it, then he is certainly present. And in reading the Bible, we get to see how this works out in a whole heap of ways, in both the ordinary 
and extraordinary circumstances. In fact, I think this means that the ordinary is extraordinary. We see this in the miracles and we also see it in the tragedies. And when we read the Bible, we get to look back and see how God has worked in and through the lives of his people. In the case of Jonah, God knew where Jonah was. He heard his cry. He has power to act and do his will. And that's still true today, isn't it? God is definitely active today, even if we don't have the benefit of hindsight through which to see it. Although, if you are a Christian, I do hope that you can reflect with thankfulness in the ways that God has been at work. And God has most importantly been at work in us for our salvation, hasn't he? Ephesians 1 says that we have been given every spiritual blessing. God's work in the lives of all of us is to adopt us into his family through Christ, providing for us what we truly need. Well, you might be left with the question, if this is the case, if God is everywhere and he can save everyone, why doesn't he? Why do bad things happen? It's a great question and Rest assured, while we don't have time to go into it in detail here, it has been asked and it has robust answers. But as we look at Jonah, we can even see here that the Bible doesn't lie about hard questions like this. It doesn't hide from them. In the Bible, we see that not every situation, and maybe not even most situations, have happy fairy tale endings. Jesus himself was called a man of sorrows. The Bible's really clear that the, the wrongs, the hurts, the sufferings and the mess of this world is, is a reality, but it also says that these things will end, that everything will be put right. It's also clear that although we don't understand the why behind everything we experience, that we have a God that does. We know that God is good, his plans and purposes never fail, and he works for our good. And God has already defeated the greatest enemy, death, at the greatest of all possible costs. We have, um, I think, a short-term vision of how we would like things to work out sometimes, but God does have the bigger picture. And so even in hard times, we can trust that the ever-present God of the whole universe, who is loving and willing to go through everything, even death himself, with us and for us. And if you want to think more on this this question, I do commend Anthony's sermon to you from this morning, from the start of Exodus, which I thought addressed it really well. But God's presence, uh, it does mean two things. One, it means if we continue to reject God and we don't call out to him as Jonah did, well, we can't escape him. Pretending that God doesn't exist actually doesn't make it so. We can't escape God in in life or in death. Sooner or later, we will come before him. But it also means that the same God is never too far away. He will always hear your call. God's presence is precious. And that's how it's framed throughout the Bible as well. God's promise back in the start of Genesis of I will be with you means not not only will God be there, but he will be with us, for us, working for our good. God wants to save. He delights when we turn from sin and turn to him. Nothing makes him happier. 
if you are a, a, a great sinner, God is a greater saviour. If you're stuck in your ways, well, God can change your heart. If you're full of guilt, God can set you free. When thinking about this, Augustine wrote, Do you want to flee from him? No, rather flee to him. And if you want to see, truly see that God does care, well, we can do no better than to look to Jesus, can't we? Where God cared so much that he became one of us. His presence became literal, physical. The God who is everywhere, he came here, shrunk himself to a baby to live with us and to die for us. Point three, the the God who came here. We have considered how perfect of a saviour to Jonah the fish was, even if it seems a bit comical, but have you considered just how perfect a saviour Jesus is? Um, If you know me, you'll know I really enjoy sport, particularly soccer. It was my first love. Um, Don't tell Scott, I was maybe a bit strong. I follow it a bit too closely, and I wonder if you've ever watched a soccer match with someone who is a, a big supporter. Because a strange thing happens every time without fail, but it is odd when you think about it. Um, Say, for example, I follow Man United, and on the all-too-rare occasion that Ronaldo scores a goal for Man United, uh, the team I support, I yell out, We scored! And, of course, everyone else who follows Man United do too. Um, Now, of course, if you think about it, you'll go, Actually, Mitch, you didn't do anything. Ronaldo scored. Really only one person kicked the goal, but Ronaldo, when you support Man United, in a way he represents us. And those who support Man United benefit. We partake in that goal and that victory too, even if it's rare. And I think it's one of the wonderful things about attending sporting matches live is a a bunch of people who all collectively ride and have highs and celebrate and partake in what's happening on the pitch. And it's actually like that with Jesus as well. When the Bible says that we are in Christ, well, it means that when Jesus wins, so do we. And Jesus has. In Jesus' death and resurrection, it means he has come safely through God's judgment on sin into eternal life. And if we trust, if we follow Jesus, well, we are safe too. Just as the fish saved Jonah from death and it delivered him to life, Jesus has saved us. And just like Jonah contributed nothing except to call out to God, well, we too contribute nothing, but we call on Jesus to save. Well, if you are waiting on a sign yourself to see that God is real, you want to believe in God, but you, um, you need more proof, you're waiting on the current news story with hard evidence that a man was swallowed by a fish, lived in it for three days, all caught on camera while inside the fish, uh, and then is back home safe now. If that's you, uh, well, Jesus actually has a, a bit of a warning for you. In the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 12, 38 to 42, we read that some other people just wanted signs from God. Some scribes and Pharisees tell Jesus, well, teacher, we want a sign. Jesus' response is, as always, not what you'd expect. He refers to Jonah. It says, But he replied to them, An evil and adulterous generation craves a sign, yet no sign will be given except the sign of the prophet Jonah. 
Because just as Jonah was in the stomach of the sea creature for three days and three nights, so the Son of Man will be in the heart of the earth for three days and three nights. The men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment and condemn the people living today because they repented at the preaching of Jonah. But look, something greater than Jonah is here. Spoiler alert, sorry, as we go on to reading Jonah, he spends three days and three nights in the belly of the fish before he's regurgitated and he becomes a sign to the people of Nineveh who repent and believe. And as we heard last week, in the greatest miracle of all, Jesus died. Three days later, he rose again, conquering death, making forgiveness available to all. This is the greatest sign. What other sign do you need? This is the only sign we need to be saved. If you don't believe in God now because you're waiting to see him do something, well, you, you might not get it. You might be getting it and not see it or be satisfied um, God has already done something. Look to Jesus. And if you're in the boat where you don't know enough about Jesus to be convinced of this, well, can I encourage you to do the Simply Christianity course that we run here at church or put in a comment card asking to know more. Nothing would delight us more. Or find me after. I'd love to read one of the biographies of Jesus with you, as would many, many people here. Because it's the story of Jesus, the death, the raising to life, that is the sign that we all need to know and trust in. Well, our God is a God who saves. And so what that means for us now, I think, is don't give up praying. No one is beyond the love of God. Don't limit yourself to just praying for or talking to people who just seem interested or who are living a lifestyle that already kind of seems to be Christian. Our God is not so limited. Pray for the unreached. Pray for those that you've come in contact with incidentally. Pray for them all. Don't give up on those people that you have been praying for for years but you haven't seen any change in. They don't seem open. You can't see anything changing. Don't stop praying. Our God is patient. If you have friends or family, keep on praying for them. Know that God knows exactly where they are and he's right there to rescue them the moment that they call out to him. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you for Jesus for his death and his life-saving resurrection. We, We praise you that you are everywhere and that you care and you have power to save. Please help us to be a people who want everyone to see and recognise the sign of Jesus. Uh, Please give us a heart for the lost. May we always point people to you. We praise you and thank you that no one is beyond your reach, that we don't know your good plan. Thank you that we can be a part of it. Uh, Help us to be a people marked by prayer and trust in our great God who is there. Amen.